The Lodge by Robert McMinn Chapter 14 There's a phrase I often used in the classroom when I was talking about major historical events or social change. A number of things happened at once. I've always been interested in the idea of paradigm shifts and how new ideas are resisted for a long time due to the power of old narratives. Copernican revolutions do not happen overnight, but take years, decades, centuries of the old model not working before people will finally accept that it is wrong. Often, these shifts take place because of, well, because of events, dear boy, events. At the end of the 19th century, modernity was ushered in by the rapid-fire invention of moving pictures, the phonograph, the telephone and radio. These new media turned small, local phenomena into huge, national and international phenomena. At the same time, the production line and the First World War transformed the world's economies. I was thinking about all this in relation to our own little corner of the world. The appearances and visitations seemed to be escalating. At the same time, our bookings for the retreat and the stables next door were picking up. I consulted some websites and put in an order for some equipment. Having researched phone apps, I was prepared to believe I could use audio and video recording on the phone, but I was sceptical of its ability to record electromagnetic fields, as some of these apps claimed. They were just games, really, just for fun, as they say. I wanted to get hold of some actually useful equipment. I ordered three of those monitoring devices that measure the air quality, humidity, noise levels and temperature in a house. These cylindrical devices are part of a system designed for meteorological measurements, but they can double as indoor monitors and all the data is recorded over the network onto your phone. I put one downstairs in the hallway for control and one in the corridor where the cold spot had been. The third I wanted to float around, so I started off with it in the hatch room, but also intended to put it in the studio. I was limited to three of these things because of budgetary constraints and the moderating hand of grace, although it's also the case that you can only link three of these modules together. To get more, we'd have to introduce a second phone and possibly a second Wi-Fi network, but I did also order a couple more wireless infrared cameras like the ones in the garden, but for indoors. And on top of that, potentially useless, an EMF detector. While we were waiting for all the deliveries to arrive, Grace and I, by unspoken agreement, started spending more time out of the house. We drove down to the coast a couple of times and set off on long coastal walks wrapped up in multiple layers against the wind coming in off the sea and equipped with one of Kate's old cameras and my sketchbook. The coastal walks and some others involved driving off for hours, which was fine. We'd find somewhere to eat lunch or buy a sandwich and make a day of it. We both felt better to be out and about and I have to admit that I'd let my fitness go a bit in those first few months in the lodge. Even when we weren't setting off for long walks that involved a car journey, we would go on one of the circuits near a home. There were about three different overlapping circular walks, 
One of them followed the river for a bit before looping back. Another set off across the farmer's field and across a couple of valleys. The third was more of a woodland stroll. We both agreed it was good for us to be familiar with walks we might recommend to guests, and we actually made our own mini-guide with some routes mapped out and notes about interesting sites along the way. One such interesting site was a ruined chapel named for a local saint which sat incongruously in a field near the meeting of two rivers. There was no roof on it, but the walls were still there, with three gothic windows along the longest wall and one at each end. The footpath passed close by, and you could just admire it from a distance or pick your way across the field to have a closer look. If you do so, you discover that there is also the remains of a small cemetery. Most of the stones now lean against the walls inside the chapel, but there are still a couple in their original positions, or so I assume. I'd got to the stage of setting up the air quality monitors in the house, but I hadn't yet unpacked the EMF detector or set up the cameras. We would use some guests on the following day, and we decided it would not be politic if I was seen walking around the house dousing for ghosts. As it was, we could justify the air quality and noise monitors as being for the benefit of our guests. Hello, tax write-down. But we felt they might be a bit creeped out by the presence of cameras. It being our last day before a week of running around after guests, we decided to go out for a walk on this Saturday. Abby was going to be working more or less full-time the following week, so the workload would be lighter. But we were still concerned about her. She had been shaken by her experience, and whether it was a real living intruder or an apparition, there was no easy way to process the experience. So we went on the circular walk that took us by the chapel. You come upon it almost suddenly because it's concealed behind a fairly steep ridge, so you have to climb up the hill so that you can see down the other side into the river valley where the field was. The field itself has a dry stone wall all around it in poor repair, and behind the wall a spinny of mixed woodland. The river runs along one edge, and the chapel is closer to the river than it is to the spinney. Anyway, we were slightly winded, as usual, when we reached the top of the ridge and stood, looking down at the chapel, which always took my breath away. I'm quite keen on the whole subject of abandoned villages and settlements. It always feels more like a glimpse of the future than a window into the past. The great thing about the chapel is that it tended to look different depending on the time of day and the time of year. This was springtime, so the sun was getting higher and today it was casting quite harsh shadows from the chapel walls. Grace said, Oh look, someone's down there. It was true. There was a woman standing near the chapel. I wondered if she was going in for a closer look, but she didn't move. We started down the hill and came to a dip where the chapel was temporarily hidden. When we climbed out of it, we could see more clearly now. And we paused. She still wasn't moving, and it was apparent that she was looking not at the chapel, but towards the river, or possibly us. It was what she was wearing that brought us up short again and caused Grace to take a sharp intake of breath. She appeared to be wearing a voluminous beige skirt in an old-fashioned style 
with a matching single-breasted jacket which reached her hips. You couldn't see her feet beneath the skirt. The jacket had a collar which folded over into a lapel. The sleeves were narrow at the wrists and kind of puffed up at the top of the arms. She was wearing a black hat which looked like a boater with a black band around the crown. She still didn't move and we lost sight of her as we entered the spinney with a path which led down to a narrow footbridge to the other side of the river. By the time we came out of the woods and could see the chapel again, the woman was gone. We looked along the path in both directions and even walked over to the chapel to look around it and inside it and over the other side of the field, but she was nowhere to be seen. That was strange, said Grace. I wonder where she went. I said nothing. I thought I knew where she had gone. We continued along the path which would loop back around towards the lodge. We were silent for a few minutes, both of us thinking the same thoughts, I suppose. Then Grace said, She was dressed in a style that looked like um, late Victorian or early Edwardian, don't you think? I shrugged. I'm no expert, but it did look old-fashioned, I allowed, a ridiculous remark in hindsight. So she was either in costume or... Is there some kind of event happening we should know about? A church fete, a spring fair, an anniversary? Not that I know of, she said, although there is always something around here. Got to keep the tourists entertained. I wonder if she was a guide or something at the local National Trust property. Well, she must be quite the athlete, if she is, I said. We were silent for a few steps more. Or it was a ghost, Grace said. I said nothing. And we both said nothing to Mrs Moffat and Abby as we prepared for the arrival of our next batch of guests the following day, the Sunday. We had four coming this time, all from different corners of the UK, all for a straightforward retreat, one vegetarian. I'd got up early to mow the grass, something I wouldn't be able to do once the guests were there, and something I was going to need to do more regularly now that the spring had come. The first of the guests had arrived, and while they were settling into their room, I went to look at the data collected by my monitors. The central heating was on, guests coming, and the house was a gratifying 19 degrees in the downstairs hallway and 16 degrees in the closed-off hatch room. The metre-square patch of carpet just outside it was holding at a steady 18 degrees, but while we'd been out of the house the previous day, the temperature had plummeted to five degrees for a period of five minutes. That was the first indication that these sensors were going to find anything, but I had mixed feelings. On the one hand, there was irrefutable evidence that we weren't imagining the cold spot. Researchers in other haunted houses, according to my research, had often struggled to get instruments to read cold spots that human beings could feel. On the other hand, the temperature drop seemed to coincide with the bit of our walk during which we'd approached the chapel and seen the woman standing near it in what Grace had confirmed was an 1890s walking suit, the kind worn by women on grand tours, the colour chosen to better conceal road dust. She still might have been a National Trust guide, but she wasn't. 
The thing I didn't understand was the connection between our sighting of the woman and the sudden drop in temperature in the house. It was only a matter of time in my mind before we got caught out. By which I mean, when we had people paying £500 each for a silent retreat, it would only be so long before there were nighttime disturbances for which we would be blamed. We debated whether to start including the detail of a possibly haunted house in our marketing materials, but it remained the case that we didn't want to attract the wrong type. But the first silent retreat of the season passed without a hitch. We were lucky again with our guests, who were particularly introverted this time around, not even sharing the tiniest details of their lives. One of them more or less stayed in her room throughout, emerging to use the bathroom and return empty plates and mugs to a trolley we had in the hallway for this purpose. What we really wanted was a dumb waiter, a means of getting things up and down the stairs, without running the risk of a fall. I wondered about the prospect of replacing the hidden spiral staircase with a rope and pulley system, but then I thought it would be wrong to change too much of the fabric of the building. It wasn't listed, but it ought to have been, in my estimation. The trolley for the plates, of course, remained in the hallway, and one of the staff, in which number I include Grace and myself, would pick up the plates. The other three guests were happy to come downstairs and eat most of their meals in the room reserved for their use, which offered a more comfortable mealtime, I think. They were all women this time. One, as I said, who remained cloistered. One was a walker. One asked if she could potter in the garden. The other spent quite a lot of time in the guest dining room, reading and annotating a manuscript. She was either an academic or an editor, but she was also the most outgoing of the four, and would pass the time of day at least. On the third day, Grace asked if everything was fine. The editor, academic, Julie, said, Of course, couldn't be better. So relaxing, thank you. No disturbances? Of course not. Wait, what do you mean? Well, we do sometimes have a woodland friend, a pine martin, who has ways of moving around in the eaves. Really? No, I've not heard anything. The brevity of the answers was enough to warn Grace not to push things much further. She turned to leave the room. Warm enough, she said on her way out. I noticed you have a temperature gauge in the corridor, she smiled. Everything is fine, honestly. And with that, Grace left the room and Julie returned to her annotating. We had a week between guests after that. We had a meeting on the Wednesday with Abby and Mrs Moffat about Abby's proposal for an autumn watch event later in the year. I was impressed at her forward thinking and also thought it showed a renewed commitment to work with us, the encounter with the stranger, forgotten. So we added autumn watch to our calendar. Abby had consulted local wildlife groups and we were planning to print a map of the local area and all the interesting habitats from moorland and coasts to marshes and woods. There was plenty to see. And while we didn't go as far as thinking about a writing tutor, we made a point of emphasising what a great place it would be for a writer on a deadline. Abby had a degree in marketing, which, while it's no measure of common sense, had certainly given her a grasp of the life cycle of such plans, 
and she had a keen eye for the best impression to give guests in both the retreat and the stables. She was also quite capable of working on the website and the design work for the walking guide and wildlife watching guide. Since Grace's sister Beth had been helping us out free of charge in between her real job, we agreed that she would pass these duties to Abby, who was grateful for the extra hours and still content to help Mrs Moffat with the catering and hospitality. Things seemed to have gone quiet with the house. My indoor sensors and cameras weren't catching anything, not even any temperature changes in the corridor. I tried one of the sensors in the studio for a while, especially while I was working in there, but there were no more close encounters of the weird kind. As Grace had put it, the observer effect seemed to have kicked in. As long as I was measuring, they, for different values of they, weren't coming out to play. But then something did happen, something unpleasant and shocking. We had been making quite a selling point of Martha, and the chance that a patient guest might catch sight of this gorgeous, rare mammal. And then, one morning, I was up early, getting ready to take a trip down to our woods, when I came across her dead body in the barn. She was lying just inside the entrance, her dead eyes staring, her mouth seemingly frozen in the moment of a squeal or a scream, and her beautiful yellow fur bib ripped open. I stood over her, feeling a profound sadness, unable to process what I was seeing. What could have done this? What would kill her, but then leave the body uneaten? I debated with myself whether to dispose of the body before I told Grace what I'd found, but then I thought it would be easier for her to process the death if she had seen the body, so I decided to leave it up to her. I gently told her the news, and before the words were out of my mouth, she was out of the side door and heading round to the barn. I found her there with tears in her eyes. This is horrible, she said. Even more horrible was having to tell Abby to perhaps remove all the details about Martha from the website. Although we decided to leave the infrared photos that had captured Martha at night, eating berries from the rowan tree the previous autumn, it felt final to be changing the website. Although I harboured a faint hope that Martha had had kits at some point which might return to the house to nest. Small things began to go missing again. There seemed to be only the one hiding place, the one we'd found before, so it wasn't too much of an inconvenience. All I had to do was go and look behind the skirting board every couple of weeks. I started to grow cautious about the house again, after being lulled into a state of complacency. I dug out my EMF detector, which I'd barely done anything with, and I spent a couple of days between guests dousing. I don't think I really captured anything, but the sensor in the corridor did. A short-lived drop in temperature which lasted only a couple of minutes, but seemed to coincide with me opening up the skirting and retrieving some purloined items. A souvenir spoon I didn't even know we had. A ring Mrs Moffat had taken off when she was making meatballs and a lone key. Even stranger, when I returned that afternoon to my studio where I was working on a painting, I found that the canvas had been turned around so that its back was facing towards me. 
As always, the door had been locked while I'd been away. Then came the time Grace was trapped in the spiral staircase. She had mostly been avoiding it since we had discovered it, but she had also decided that if it was going to be used as an emergency exit, then it had better be properly cleaned. Since she felt she couldn't ask Abby or Mrs Moffat to do this job, she had taken it on herself. She had entered the kitchen level, taking with her a dustpan and brush. There was no carpet on these stairs, just old linoleum. She had of course left the door at the bottom open with a chair propping it so that it would be clear someone was in there. She walked to the top of the stairs, opened the door at the top, giving herself two potential exits and then started sweeping the stairs top to bottom for the invisible dust that only she could see there. Now, there was nothing to hold the top door open but there was carpet on the other side of it so a little bit of friction. Meanwhile, unaware what Grace was up to, I was on an unscheduled visit to the hatch room where I was going to check the hidey hole for a particular missing item. Abby had complained of losing an earring when she was cleaning. I slid up the skirting board, but the hole was empty on this occasion. Just as I was sliding the board down again, there was an almighty bang behind me as the door to the hatch room slammed. I jumped out of my skin, made a noise like a startled rhino, and felt again like all the blood had left my body at once. I almost keeled over. When I'd recovered my wits, I swiftly crossed the room to wrench the door back open. But, well, it wasn't locked exactly, but it seemed to take me three attempts to turn the handle and open the door. I didn't notice that the hidden door at the end of the corridor had also been closed because I hadn't known that it should be open. I went downstairs looking for Grace so I could complain that the boggle was added again. I couldn't find her and assumed she was elsewhere in the house or had gone outside to do something. I did call her name but received no reply. It didn't worry me at the time. Neither Mrs Moffat nor Abby were around on this particular day. I settled down in the morning room with a book and perhaps half an hour passed. There was still no sign of Grace, so I called out again. Nothing. I wondered if she was having one of her rare naps upstairs in our bedroom, so I ran up the stairs and opened the bedroom door. The bed was empty, still made up from this morning. I walked along the corridor, checking all the rooms, including the bathrooms. And at this point, I have to say that when I'd first met her, she had been prone to the occasional faint. It was all to do with lack of iron, a problem eventually remedied with a supplement, but there had been one terrifying occasion when she had fainted in the bathroom of our old house, blocking the door when she fell. On that occasion, I had known she was in there, but had been unable to move the door and get in there to help. I was thinking of this terrifying occasion when I was walking around the house looking for her. I opened every single door on our floor, and then every single door on the guest floor, and only then did I think of the spiral staircase. It took me so long because I'd honestly assumed that Grace was not keen on using it and so would not be in there. But when I opened the door, 
in the kitchen. The chair had been pushed aside when it was slammed and called up. She came thundering down the stairs from the top where she had been, according to her, frantically banging on the door. I was calling and calling, didn't you hear me? Obviously not. This incident, more than any other, had seemed like malice. Slamming the door on me, slamming two other doors, had taken more than just a gust of wind. As I said, a kitchen chair had been placed in front of the door at the bottom and it had been moved almost a metre when the door had been slammed. Been slammed. Understandably, Grace was done with the spiral stairs after this and she instructed Mrs Moffat and Abby never to use them. <laughs>